Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the well-known American strategist and author, my friend Corey Sharkey. Dr. Sharkey graduated from Stanford and earned her doctorate from the University of Maryland. Her career has alternated between government service, including stints at the Pentagon, the State Department and the National Security Council, and think tanks, including the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, the Hoover Institution and the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., where Corey now serves as a Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign and Defence Policy Studies. She also served as the Senior Foreign Policy Advisor on the McCain campaign in 2008. Corey has written five books, including an excellent Lowy Institute paper published in 2018 titled America vs. the West. Thank you, Corey Sharkey, for joining me from Sonoma, California, for the Director's Chair. What a great pleasure, my friend. So, Corey, tell us, first of all, about your upbringing in sunny California. What did your folks do? What originally interested you in foreign affairs? How did you come into this field? Yeah, so my mom was a stay-at-home mom, Mm -hmm. which was fabulous, and I would be a totally different person if my mother hadn't spent her intellect and her patience and her humor on raising her children. Mm -hmm. And my dad was an airline pilot for Pan Am. And so how I got interested in the world was that my dad's deal with me my whole life was he would take me anywhere in the world I wanted to go if I would be his tour guide. So I would check books on Tokyo or Sydney out of the Sonoma library and study up and then go someplace with my dad and show him around. What a tremendous introduction to the world. It was great fun. And of course, I'm a middle child, so it was the only time I ever had my dad's attention to myself. All right. So you had this introduction to the world via Pan Am. When you finished school in Sonoma, you decided to go to college in Stanford. And one of your mentors there, I think, one of your professors was Condoleezza Rice, later National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to President George W. Bush. Tell us a bit about Condi as a teacher. Oh, she's a magnificent teacher. And I was a dreamy, impractical kid that didn't have a plan for her life. And it was a huge benefit to me that when I graduated from Stanford with no plan and no job, Condi let me work as her research assistant for the year after I graduated. And it actually gave me the expertise that's been the foundation of my profession because Condi had me researching for a book she actually never wrote that was looking at elite selection in the Soviet and American militaries. Mm. And so I spent a year reading everything written by and about the American military leadership. What gets people picked for top jobs? What's the texture of the culture? What do they care about? One of the things that I learned from that was that the Soviet leadership all wrote like they were MIT engineering professors. And of course, the Americans all wrote about leadership. They all wrote about how do you motivate people to do hard, dangerous, important things. Speaking of hard, dangerous, important things, your PhD. (laughs) You went to the University of Maryland, and I think you did a master's and a doctorate there. Tell us about that and how that kind of informed your worldview and your career. Yeah, so I had some amazing professors at Maryland. 
Catherine Kelleher, the great German expert, writer of Germany and the politics of nuclear weapons. So I got the opportunity to learn about Europe from Catherine, who locked in a closet with no information, is still the best analyst of Europe of anybody I've ever known. And then uh, my PhD was supervised by the great economist and strategist, Tom Shelley, who taught me a ton about a ton. Mm -hmm. And my dissertation was on comparing strategy in the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations for the Berlin crises in 1958 and 61. Because as of course, you know, Michael, it's one of those few cases where you get real historical comparability because the only thing that changes is the president of the United States. Even the threat the Soviets make, the memorandum that they give to the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, mm -hmm. is actually the same document. Well, later in 2002, you had the opportunity to work for a different president in the middle of a series of other crises when you took up a position in George W. Bush's National Security Council. And you were there for that remarkable period where America was prosecuting the war in Afghanistan, and it made that fateful decision to invade Iraq. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I started on the NSC in the spring of 2002, and my strongest impression of everybody in the leadership at that time was how scared they were, how traumatic the attacks of September 11th had been on the American leadership and how dramatically it changed their risk calculus. I mean, if you just think of Condi, right? During the election of 2000, Condi writes a mm -hmm. policy piece in Foreign Affairs in which she complains that the 82nd Airborne shouldn't be walking children to school in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. And the flip of, you know, we can't feel safe in a world in which states are constituted differently from our state and the kind of Wilsonian expansionism of the Bush administration really gets driven by fear as much as it gets driven by arrogance. I've often wondered to myself, the great counterfactual question for me of the Bush administration is if the sanctions regime on Iraq collapsed in 2005 instead of 2003, would they still have chosen to go to war in Iraq? And I very often have doubts that they would have because we knew so little about the magnitude, the dimensions of the terrorist threat in 2001. And so you see a lot of the really expansive authorities, the decisions on waterboarding and other things that turn out to be such disgraces, such damage to America's role in the world were the results of everybody feeling like every day was September 10th. And once we get a lot more knowledgeable about the nature of the challenges we're facing, they get a lot better at playing defense and a lot more precise in how they engage offensively. When you think back on the Iraq war, I know you've said publicly you think it was a mistake. How big a mistake was it? Oh, I think it... It was of historic dimensions, probably the equivalent of the Vietnam War in terms of the way it causes states to look differently at the United States, to wonder whether the United States is a reliable and responsible dominant power in the international order, 
and has huge domestic repercussions. If a president of the United States tried to make the argument for a preventative attack on North Korea's nuclear weapons, the American public wouldn't stand for that because they wouldn't believe the administration's intelligence and they wouldn't think the administration would be able to successfully prosecute that war. And I think that's going to cast a long shadow into American use of military force. All right. Later in the decade, you joined John McCain's campaign for president. <laughs> you were a McCainiac. I sailed on the pirate ship McCain and proudly claim it. You were on the pirate ship. I don't know if you were on the campaign bus, the Straight Talk Express. Uh, but tell us about working for McCain in that campaign and what attracted you to John McCain as a presidential candidate. So I had never met Senator McCain when I joined the campaign. I was the deputy director in policy planning at the State Department at the time and was recruited because of things I had been writing about the Iraq war and the importance of the surge, you know, the general importance of winning wars we decide to fight. Mm -hmm. And it was such a privilege to work for John. You know, it's a real rarity in politics to admire somebody more at the end of working for them than you did at the start of working for them. But that was really true for me with Senator McCain. And the thing that was most wonderful about him was that, God, I'm going to start crying. The thing that was so wonderful about John was that how deep-seated his empathy was for people who were suffering. Mm -hmm. He had such a natural and profound respect for people who could act courageously mm. in danger, whether they were political prisoners or rape survivors or uh, politicians trying to navigate a country out of authoritarianism and into representative government. It's a nice thing when you encounter someone as genuine and authentic as that. Now, in that campaign, of course, it was the McCain-Palin ticket for president. And Corey, the last US ambassador to Australia was the Republican lawyer A.B. Culverhouse Jr., who worked in the Reagan administration. And one of the things A.B. did for a number of Republican nominees was vet the potential vice presidential candidates. And I did ask A.B. once about vetting Sarah Palin. And he said that when he gave his report to Senator McCain about Palin, he said picking her would be high risk, high reward. And of course, McCain loved taking risks. That was just the kind of bait to <laughs> yeah. get John. I think that's right. Right. So McCain was in and he picked Sarah Palin. What are your memories of Palin as part of that presidential ticket? So I was part of the group that made those hundred flashcards for Governor mm -hmm. Palin when she was first appointed. Because, of course, in any political fight where you are nominating a governor, National security is something most American governors don't have to spend lots of time or attention on. So it was easy to anticipate that she would be pushed to answer those kinds of questions early. And also, John was so old that the suitability of his vice president on day one was a subject of legitimate public interest. And what I remember about Governor Palin was that within the space of about 24 hours, she could get the answers to all of those hundred flashcards. People painted her as stupid, which she isn't, but reckless 
that she definitely was. Mm. And there's probably a reason not a lot of national, successful national political leaders come from Alaska because it's a very unique ecosystem and everybody at the senior levels of politics knows everybody else. One of the people who, uh, after the appointment, got sent up to Alaska to kind of see whether there were any local political issues we were going to have to deal with. That guy was actually a lawyer, a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. And he came back ashen faced saying, man, this is going to be a mess. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm always intrigued by that choice because apart from her sort of fitness for office or her background in Alaska, she had a very different approach to politics from McCain. And I mean, some people argue that it was the energy and enthusiasm that Palin brought that started to change the Republican Party and in some ways paved the way for Trump. I agree with that. Is that a sort of negative part of McCain's legacy that he helped inadvertently perhaps to change yeah. the Republican Party that he served for so many years, even though he was always very loyal to Palin and never criticised her. I wonder what he thought about that appointment in retrospect. So it's a really good question. And I agree that Palin's selection, her elevation onto a national ticket, is the right precursor for President Trump and Trumpism as a major force in Republican policy. The rejection of elites as bringing any particular expertise to a problem, the populism, and as you said, the dynamism and energy that she brought. I wasn't involved in the vice president's selection. My recollection from the time was how very badly Senator McCain wanted to choose Senator Lieberman. And the Republican establishment bridled at having a Democrat as the vice president for a Republican ticket. And that left John sort of at loose ends. And looking at the next generation of Republican leadership, you know, Paul Ryan, John Thune, mm -hmm. Governor Palin, I think you're right, the high risk, high reward choice appeals to him very much. I would also point out that before the financial crisis, John was up by three points. So what in retrospect looks like a train wreck, in real time looked less so. Mm. From that moment, you and the GOP were on slightly different paths. And by 2016, when Donald Trump won the Republican nomination for president, you endorsed his opponent, Hillary Clinton. And then in 2020, you endorsed Joe Biden for president. Tell us about those two decisions, which are not easy ones to make. Yeah, uh, they're not easy. And I am uh, proudly a Republican, although I sometimes feel a little lonely out on the left wing of the Republican Party. It, both 2016 and 2020, it felt important to me. To the extent anyone cares what I think about it, I thought candidate Trump and President Trump were a genuine danger to the United States and a genuine danger to the international order that the United States and its friends had constructed. And so, you know, I don't like Clinton's tax policy. 
I don't like a lot of Biden's policies, but I don't actually think they're a danger to the republic. And I do think that about Donald Trump. All right. Let me ask you about the Trump era. In your 2018 Lowy Institute paper, America versus the West, you argued that as America stepped back from the world and did less, the rest of the West needed to step forward and do more. So let me ask you in the Trump period, how did the rest of the West do? So before I answer it, let me say thank you for giving me the opportunity to write that book. I enjoyed the process very much. I enjoyed the excellent criticisms I got from reviewers during publication and navigating it with Lowy editors. It was really fun to do. Well, come and do another one. (laughs) Gladly, my friend, gladly. You're right. My thesis in the book was that one way to handle American retrenchment or what comes during the Trump administration, which is the willful destructiveness of the liberal order, was for the middle and smaller powers who are great beneficiaries of this order and understand that. Australia understands it. Germany understands it. Japan understands it. Britain understands it. France understands it. Canada understands it. For those countries to band together more effectively and to take actions that at a minimum could stabilize the system and buy time, and on the more ambitious end of their potential success, could do what John Eikenberry, the great theorist of the liberal international order, argued, which is that its ultimate proof is that it should no longer rely on American power in order to sustain itself. And I think middle powers actually did great. I mean, in particular, Australia, which is the frontline state uh, facing Chinese predatory behavior and malevolence. You know, Australia's decision before the American decision to exclude Huawei from its communication systems, the square-shouldered courage with which the Australians have borne Chinese economic sanctions and attempts to subvert Australian citizens to Chinese purpose is a model for all of us. I hope I and my countrymen are as stalwart as Australians have been. And taking a lot of interesting political initiatives, you know, the effort with Pacific Island nations to band together the Australian-Japanese initiative for secure supply chains that my country hopes to be reliable enough to be allowed to participate in. And the way Japan is cascading Coast Guard ships and training to the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam to try and help countries become more self-sufficient in countering Chinese depredations. That Britain's sending an aircraft carrier to the Pacific. France has already done so. That Europeans begin to understand that as global powers, they need to care about the way China is trying to rewrite the rules and rewrite the map in Asia and beyond. So I think middle powers have actually done really well. I'm not sure they could have sustained that progress against a Trump second term because the Trump administration learned over time a lot better how to 
uh, use the levers of the American political system. And I think, you know, the president would very likely have achieved the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Japan, South Korea, and Germany in a second term. And a lot of other things that would have been more difficult for middle and smaller powers to substitute for American power. Well, Trump didn't win a second term. He was defeated, I think, in part by COVID, actually. I agree. After the election in that awful, awkward, tragic, really interregnum, we had the capital siege of January 6th. I spoke to Richard Haas a week or two ago. He told me he thought that that was the biggest threat to American democracy since the Civil War. What were your thoughts of the capital siege? It was horrifying to see my own political party attempt to prevent the peaceful transition of power in my country. And I think the continued denial by so many of my fellow Republicans of the legitimacy of President Biden's election and the excuses they are making for the vigilantism whipped on by President Trump to attack the Capitol and do violence to our elected officials is a very serious and continuing threat to democracy in America. We have a lot of work to do. It really makes a difference that the FBI is not under constant political pressure by the White House not to prosecute white nationalists and vigilantes. And they've arrested something like 500 people associated with the January 6th insurrection. And once people begin to have consequences for the use of violence in American politics, I am actually optimistic that it will lose its popularity once people start going to prison for breaking the law. There's a new book out this month, Corey, I Alone Can Fix It, about that period in which it's reported that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said that he feared President Trump was going to attempt a coup in the aftermath of the 2020 election. You spent a lot of your professional life thinking about civil-military relations. How did the American military handle itself, the military leadership handle itself in that period? And do you think that President Trump would have tried to mount a coup if he felt he could have? Uh, yes, I believe, you know, the recent revelations um, from the Justice Department about Trump appointees attempting to manipulate the use of the FBI and the Justice Department to that end, I think, give pretty strong corroboration to the allegation that that's what the president was attempting to do. The American military was exemplary in the six months before the election and in the six months after in thinking very carefully how to keep the American military out of anything like that. And I think actually in one of those twists of fate that the ancient Greeks so savored in their art and literature, the mistakes General Milley made marching through Lafayette Square in a combat uniform after the square had been forcibly cleared of peaceful protesters during the Black Lives Matter, that mistake actually turned out to be extraordinarily valuable because General Milley's apology for that mistake 
really brightened the line of appropriate military behavior in political circumstances in the United States. And it scared the military leadership so much to realize the damage the president was willing to do to our military's relationship with our public for his narrow political purposes, that a lot of planning and a lot of thought and a lot of public statements by the chief of staff of the army, the chief of staff of the air force, the chairman and everybody else emphasizing that the proper role for the American military in a contested political election is none. There is no role for the American military in that. And that was really important in sequestering the military away from all of the damage the president and his supporters were willing to do. And then just to bring this full circle, I mean, one of the reasons that the National Guard and military forces weren't more present or more quickly responding on January 6th was because neither the military nor the elected political leadership of the District of Columbia wanted a large and visible military role after the Lafayette Square business. All right, America got through that moment. And later that month, Joe Biden was inaugurated as president of the United States. We're now six months into that. You had endorsed uh, Joe Biden for president. How would you grade his foreign policy? Indeed, how would you grade his presidency in his first six months? It is such a relief to be back to barring competence and arguments about policies I don't agree with. Like, I feel like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders that I don't have to worry about the constitutionality or potential for violence or disruption. I don't know. I'd give President Biden a solid B minus, I guess. I like his foreign policy priority of returning democracy promotion and human rights to the center of American foreign policy. I don't actually see him enacting policies that achieve those aims, right? Like he's writing off Afghanistan and will soon write off Iraq. And the humanitarian consequences, in particular for women in Afghanistan, of us walking away from the progress we had been making slowly in that country. It's already eye-poppingly, heart-achingly bad, and it's going to get a lot worse. So I would like to see a lot more policies that do what they say. This notion that they have about a foreign policy for the middle class I find puzzling and um, unhelpful because what it looks to me like they actually mean is trade protectionism being dressed up as what the American people want. But if you look at polls of American public attitudes, like the Chicago Council on Global Affairs poll, Americans are very strongly pro-trade. They understand it makes them more prosperous. And so I think That little populist twist is emboldening them to continue trade tariffs and other bad international economic policies that will make it harder for them to achieve their central aim, which is arraying allies side by side in opposition to what China is trying to change in the international order. We actually need an economic policy that helps countries wean themselves off of reliance on China in sectors of their economy 
where they fear they will be vulnerable or taken advantage of by the Chinese. And again, here, the Australian-Japanese example of, you know, after the 20, was it 2010, when the fishing dispute between Japan and China and the Chinese cut off rare earth supplies to Japan. The Japanese invested in mining and processing in Australia. They innovated to reduce their electronics production reliance on rare earths. Like that's really smart strategy. And I wish the Biden administration would get that smart in thinking about their international economic strategy. I also think they have a very assertive national security policy that they are failing to adequately underwrite with military spending, defense spending, that will make it possible to achieve it. I really worry about the gap between our stated policies and our ability to execute them. And I worry that adversaries are going to test that. And it seems to me that it's much cheaper to keep a wide margin of error than to have to prove that you are trustworthy, reliable, capable of defending your friends and your interests. Speaking of China, Corey, what is the sort of long-term settling point for US policy on China, do you think? I mean, the foreign policy elites, there's a lot of bipartisanship at the moment, and there's a lot of public feeling, especially, I think, in the aftermath of COVID. uh, There's quite a lot of anti-China feeling. But there's also a counter argument, which is that China is going to be the other big global power. And there's a lot of issues on which the United States can't progress and and indeed global cooperation can't progress without a positive US-China relationship. So what do you think is the settling point for US policy on China? I really like the way you identify it as a settling point, right? Like what is the objective we are trying to achieve in our China policy? And I genuinely think it's unchanged across the about the last 40 years. And it's the Zealot formulation. We want a powerful, prosperous China that plays by the rules. Um, because China wouldn't have become powerful and prosperous without the international order of these rules that they are selectively abiding by. And it's not in America's interest, and I think not in our allies' interests to allow a changing of the rules that are prejudicially favoring China at the rest of our expense. So I think that's what we're still going for. And the gears begin to mesh now in American policymaking. You know, Ray Dalio may still think there's no difference between investing in China and investing in the United States, but a whole lot of DD investors doubt that that's true. And I deeply doubt whether Ray Dalio would incorporate his investment companies in China and leave them at risk of governmental fiat. But he's an outlier. And I think money's still sloshing into China from Wall Street, but Congress is getting smart enough to begin to legislate. Regulatory bodies in the government are beginning to think very seriously about where are our strategic vulnerabilities and how do we prevent American companies, for example, from abetting Chinese technologies for surveillance. I think all of that kind of stuff is coming very fast down the pike, and it will make American policy more effective in driving China towards an understanding that if they 
want the prosperity that they are aspiring to. You know, we talk about the Chinese economy in GDP terms, which are monumental, but wealth, as my colleague at AI, Michael Beckley, points out, wealth actually matters probably more than GDP. And per capita GDP in China is roughly equivalent to Mexico or Mozambique. So there's a long striking distance between that and supplanting the countries, all of whom are politically liberal institutionally, um, that have found a way to navigate the middle income trap and become prosperous service and creative economies. And how important is the quad in all this? The first multilateral leaders meeting, I think, that President Biden convened was the leaders of the quad a few months ago. What are your hopes for the quad? I think it's hugely consequential. And, and it may well be the best foreign policy achievement of the Biden administration so far that they got the vaccine initiative moving in the quad. To, to demonstrate that the cooperation among India, Australia, Japan, and the United States isn't strictly military. It is about cooperation that solves international problems um, to our mutual benefit. And I think, you know, India is often thought of as the weak link in this chain, the one most hesitant to uh, appear aligned with any other and the most reticent to be engaged in cooperative military activities. And again, China's behavior is what's driven India into deeper cooperation in the Quad. It's not anything, not any genius your, my, or Japan's government has done. It's the aggression China has perpetrated in the Himalayas and elsewhere against Um, India. And so you begin to see a pattern of cooperation in Asia, much like the cooperation among the English-speaking countries and among the liberal democracies, which is that when the world feels scary, we feel safest holding each other's hands. All right. Finally, Corey, I want to come back to your current work at AEI, you and I got to know each other when you were appointed the deputy head of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. But in recent times, you've returned to Washington. You've come back to AEI, which is a conservative think tank. You've spoken today about some of your disappointment with today's Republican Party, but you've also said you're a proud Republican. How have you found it to return to Washington, to return to the capital of your country as a proud Republican? but to a capital where a lot of the Republican Party has been Trumpified. How do you square that circle? Yeah, but I have to do a better job about winning these arguments, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's no substitute for winning the political argument. The American system was designed by people who fear consolidation of power. And so, um, you know, the competing interests that are built into the American political system because they represent the political culture of my loud, disputatious provincial country um, mean that, you know, we fight our way through these things. Possibly my favorite description of Americans ever was given by British historian Bertha Ann Reuter in 1923. And she said, Americans are a people so extreme in politics or religion, or both, 
that they could not live in peace anywhere else. And we're in one of those tumultuous periods where we are redefining what it means to be conservative. And it's actually a privilege to try and participate in that fight and to be part of an institution that views itself as providing policy answers um, to the conservative side of American politics. Well, Corey Sharkey, it's been a privilege to have you on the director's chair today. You're one of the most interesting voices in our field. You're known for your insight as well as your energy and your enthusiasm, and that's come across today. You're also someone who puts country above party, and I respect that very much. So thank you for coming online from Sonoma, California, for telling us some stories from your career, from giving us your views of the world. Thank you very much, Corey, for joining me on the director's chair. It was a joy, my friend. Thank you for having me, Michael. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.